0: Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present.
1: Hello, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Jenny. And I'm Marcy. And today we're talking to the wonderful author, Kyle Lukoff, who wrote one of the honor books, Too Bright to See, for the 100th year of Newberry. Hello, Kyle. Kyle, thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Congratulations on Too Bright to See being an honor book for the hundredth year of Newberry.
2: Thank you. Also, thank you for helping make that happen. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I was on the committee and it's it's very interesting to me because of course we've been doing this podcast for years now and I'm a longtime fan of the Newberry. And to see how how it actually works was really amazing but I can't talk about it.
0: It is amazing that that was the 100th year of Newberry. How does it feel to not only win an honor, but to be part of like the 100th year
2: group? It is, this is going to sound wildly egocentric and I promise (laughs) that I have really low self-esteem, but... When I found out, like I, I had wanted to win a Newberry uh, honor or award. Honestly, I was happy with whatever. And when I realized that this year was going to be the hundredth anniversary, I was like, "Oh man, Lukov, Like you, you gotta get it! Like you gotta! It's the 100th <laughs> you like, I am, I'm a very sentimental person, and I put a lot of import on anniversaries and, even, on like round numbers and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. and. It just it felt like in some ways my entire career was leading up to this already because, you know, I had worked in bookstores and I was a librarian and I was on committees. And so it felt like it was always leading up to this. And then finding out that it was the hundredth made it feel even more portentous. Uh, yeah, I get I that completely. That I <laughs> off. Like, you got to get it. <laughs>
0: Well, what was it like when you actually got the call?
2: It was such a roller coaster. So I also have some idea of how the sausage gets made. I've never been on Newberry, but I was on Stonewall for two years running. And also one of my absolute best friends was on Newberry a couple of years ago. And then a lot of my other friends have been on Newberry too. So I was somewhat insufferably asking them a lot of questions. for the last <laughs> year. And so you know i knew when ala was and i know that the decisions are made around midwinter so like way back in like july i had told my boyfriend like the weekend of january 20 whatever i'm going to be a mess so you're just going to have to plan on hanging out with me and keeping me calm and this was back over the summer mm-hmm. cuz i i know like i know the weekend i know what happens But what I didn't realize is that you were all deliberating the week prior and that you weren't deliberating over that weekend like we usually do in person. And I found out from a friend of mine on Caldecott that Caldecott had already made their decisions and were calling people on Saturday. And I was like, wait, but I thought we got the calls on Monday morning. Like, my whole plan was to leave my phone on and, like, hopefully be woken up at 5 a.m. And she was like, oh, yeah, no, we're calling people now, I hope. That doesn't make your anxiety worse. <laughs> like it really, it, it really made it so much worse. So I got the Stonewall call the on Sunday afternoon. And by that point, I knew that Caldecott had gotten their calls. I knew that Stonewall had. A friend of mine told me that the Credit Scott King people made their call. So I, I really was like, well, maybe they're still calling super early tomorrow morning, but it seems like they're not. It seems like the calls have happened. It seems like I'm not getting this one and that's okay. And so I was like really kind of coming to a place of acceptance when my phone started to ring. And I was like, oh, no, never mind. No acceptance. (laughs) So it was like this weird, like I know people, you know, I know a lot of authors aren't as enmeshed in sort of like library world mm-hmm. but I couldn't help but know like I can't pretend like I'm not in this world I can't pretend that I wasn't on committees and that I wasn't a member of ALA so I decided just to like lean into my knowledge and my anxiety
1: I I hate that you had that kind of ju- I mean not not hate but I it sounds like such a stressful journey but I also love that like we because it wasn't happening exactly when it normally does, when things are in person, we kind of did have an element of surprise.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, it was, um, yes. Yeah, like part of me was like, oh man, like if I get a phone call at 6 a.m. on Monday, I'm going to know exactly what it is. And I'm not going to, you know, it, it it might feel like staged in some way, but it was very much a surprise, which was <laughs> in and of itself a surprise.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, that's so much fun. I but I know what you mean. Like Jenny has been a librarian for a long time in lo- on lots of communities and I was a bookseller at an indie bookstore for 10 years. So it's true. Like if ever one of us wrote a book that was up for contention, like there's no way that we could ever ignore <laughs> you know the ALA
1: timelines of things. Could you talk to us about what it means that Too Bright to See has been honored by Newbery not just as a 100 book 100th book?
2: Yeah, I think it feels, I think like me and then all of my like classmates, you know, Andrea and Rajni and Donna and Darcy, I've read all of our books and it feels like all of our books are very much Newbery books, but they're books that would not have like a existed or b be considered newbery books you know 5 or 15 or 50 years ago so it almost it feels like this interesting combination of a reimagining of what a newbery book could be while also still firmly sticking to the tradition of what newbery books have always been
1: Yeah, that's a really, really interesting perspective. I hadn't thought about that. I think because I had been looking at those books for a whole year, you know, I I didn't see that. But I think you're exactly right.
2: And it's, it's interesting to see sort of like through lines and like what kinds of books have been honored in the past and... What kinds of books are being honored now and the ways in which they are similar and the ways in which they are different. And that that is actually really fascinating to look at from just a historical perspective.
1: Oh, extremely. I can't wrap my head around entirely that we've gone this long and it's 100 years and this year was the first for LGBTQIA protagonists to be in books you know
2: (laughs) yeah that's why it feels like both you know because all of our books feel very firmly Newberry but at the same time they're also in many ways different from what's been honored in the past not in terms of quality but in terms of both theme and authorship. I mean, not even theme necessarily, because all of our books are, you know, they're about like family and loss and growing up. And that's what Newberry Books have always been. But I do think that it represents the change that many of us have been fighting for in publishing because like we have always existed and we have always wanted to be writers but we might not have been able to get book deals and if we did get book deals we might have been seen as more of a risky venture without you know the full force of marketing behind us and then there's you know there it also shows you the mindsets of the people on the committee where they don't Just discount, like, well, this book is good because he's trans, but it's not good because he can write. Or, like, you know, books by Indigenous authors are important, but they're not necessarily good. Like that sort of mindset that so many people have been locked into and some people still are. It's like that interesting combination of the books themselves, the support that the books are getting, and then also the ways that readers and, you know, librarians and committee members are also responding to these changes.
0: Well, and speaking of support, I think one of the lasting impressions of too bright to see is the support in the book, which was amazing. I mean, it's nice to see a book where like the characters are aware of things like bullying and unsupportive families, and they're as prepared for those things as they can be. But it turns out not to be necessary. I mean, I feel like, speaking of like historic trends in Newberry books. I feel like a lot of the, for lack of a better term, issues books that we grew up with were mostly concerned with dealing with like the hard, negative, bad outcomes. And I think that your book is just this lovely example to the younger readers that sometimes you don't have to be afraid. Like you can trust your friends and family to love you no matter what. And I think the internal struggle of coming to terms with yourself, like That being the main conflict and the book being, being full of just all of this overwhelming outpouring of love and support is just really beautiful.
2: Thank you. I did that on purpose.
0: (laughs) I mean, I am sure it was a conscious choice because clearly you're a very good writer, but what made you decide to go in that direction?
2: Yeah, I realized early on when I was finishing the first draft that bugs coming out had to be flawless and like he had to be met with nothing but overwhelming love and support and understanding because if he if that didn't happen it would completely change the book into a different thing it would no longer be a vision of the world that i wanted to create but just another reflection of the one that we already have. And there are plenty of books that reflect how hard it can be to come out. And there are plenty of books where a character's coming out scene is like rife with conflict and tears and problems. And I decided that I wanted something different. And I did get some pushback, like along the way, a few different publishing professionals suggested that I include just a little you know one person who doesn't get it one person who is rude one person who is more antagonistic and I kept saying no that is a different book than the one that I am writing one tiny scene would fundamentally change it in a way that I don't want and part of that for me is just like I've observed my own defense mechanisms when I'm reading books. And I'm always, like, whenever there's, like, a scene where a character's, you know, like, coming out or whatever, I'm always tensed up waiting for the bad thing to happen. And I didn't, I don't I don't like feeling that way. I wanted to write a book where you could read it and not, not have to steal yourself for the bad thing. It's actually, it kind of reminds me of when I was reading... Sex is a Funny Word by Corey Silverberg for the first time. That is a book that we ended up giving a Stonewall Honor my year. And I didn't really know anything about Corey or the book. And, but I knew that it was a book about, like, you know, puberty and, like, you know, sex ed and stuff. And I, I'll never forget, I opened up the envelope and I started reading it. And I thought, okay, this is pretty good, but I'm going to stop reading when I get to a page that hurts my feelings. Like, I'm going to stop reading when I get to a page that's, like, cis cisnormative or like, you know, heteronormative or inaccurate or incomplete. And that's what I'm going to stop reading. And I read the whole book from start to finish. And the whole book was effortlessly perfect. And that feeling of when that tension drained out of me of realizing that I wasn't going to come across something dehumanizing in this book was so huge huge it was um, I almost started crying it was so emotional for me and I wanted to recreate that in this one I didn't I didn't want my readers to have to like curl up into a ball I wanted them to be able to take a full breath the whole the whole way through but I also didn't want to sacrifice like actual conflict like bad things happen bug is sad the whole time oh yeah <laughs> so like I wanted to try to where there were real problems and real bad things happen but but that Coming out could solve those problems instead of come instead of compound them.
0: That's a, that's a great way to put it. I, I love it. I just I don't know. I love it that that your characters can feel safe and your readers can feel safe.
1: Obviously, the coming out narrative is so well done, and the descriptions of Bug in particular, in a dress and looking and seeing like a figure in like their figure in a mirror and not recognizing themselves. And I mean, there's just really, first of all, there's really gorgeous descriptions of reflections and glass and stuff like that, that I usually associate with Southern Gothic work. So I really responded to that. And then you meshed it with this like horror narrative. And I'm really curious about how you came to put the two together.
2: It really was just... It started off as just kind of a matter of convenience, almost. I decided that I wanted to try my hand at middle grade. I didn't know if I'd be good at it, but I was curious. And I thought to myself, I want to write a middle grade novel about a trans boy, because at the time I, like, didn't know of any, or I knew of, like, one, and I didn't like it. But I also thought to myself that I wanted to write this ghost story where I recycled this sentence that my dad had written in a story of his when he was much younger, which was it's strange living in the old house. Now that uncle Roderick is dead. And I was saying, I don't know which one to write first. And then I just had this sudden brainstorm of like, Oh, I'm going to do both at the same time. It's going to be a ghost story about a trans kid where the ghost like haunts him into figuring it out. That's and like, I had, I didn't have the entire story in my head, but I had this very clear vision in my head of the main character in the dead uncle's bedroom, sort of like looking under the bed for clues and finding this box of trans related information and being like why did my uncle have this what was he saving this for and so that scene which happens you know three quarters of the way through was the main anchor point for me and the whole story kind of like led up to that and then left from that but it was really just like i didn't when i first started writing i didn't like have a proper vision for what i was trying to create i just wanted to see if i could do it It's similar to when Aiden became a brother, because I knew that I wanted to write a book about a trans character, but I didn't want it to just be sort of a like paint by numbers coming out. And I didn't want it to be a thing where the character's identity was the problem that everyone was reacting to. I wanted to write a book where it was central to the story, but not the problem. And that's sort of like a through line in a lot of my books.
0: I just recently read the text of your Stonewall Award acceptance speech for that book. And it was so, what's the word, like ambivalent emotionally,
2: you know. I could write it in, you know, mid 2020.
0: Yeah, you know, but you had this despair about the state of the world, but it was contrasted with you know, hope for the future and recognition that the work you're doing is super important. To hear you talking about Too Bright to See as this work in progress and to know now later that you, that you had such, like you're having such success with it. Does it, does it help you feel less despair about the current state of the world? Because it's been sort of proved to you that, you know, if you keep going and you keep trying and working, that amazing things are happening
2: um i would say that my generalized despair about the state of the world remains untouched and if anything it just kind of grows a little bit with each passing year but i am also able to look at the things that i was afraid of happening that didn't happen and that is very comforting to me so i know now that some of the things that i am afraid of happening now also might not happen and that i don't know any more than anyone else of what the future looks like so instead of giving into despair i have to pretend like there's going to be a future that i can thrive in and that like we can survive in because if i just decide that there isn't then there won't be but if i decide that there could be then there might be
0: I started reading Too Bright to See, I was struck by, at the beginning, the way your descriptions of things felt like anxiety, like rooms having a mood that they that they held onto, whether you felt that way or not, or thought that you felt that way or not, things like that. Just obviously I've not had Bugs experience, but I, I get the, the need to narrate for yourself to try to create a better reality <laughs> and feeling that you can't control the Sort of emotional environment. So I thought that was really good.
2: The book came together in so many different ways that it's actually really cool to hear people's interpretations of it, of like the overarching things. Because for me, each piece is like a different puzzle piece that I came up with at a different time and maybe for a different reason without even knowing if it was going to fit in with the other pieces so like the rooms having moods I think I added that later when either my agent or my editor said that they wanted the house to be more of a character but then there were other bits where you could actually see the house interacting with Bug a little bit more aggressively but that got to be too much and then I had to take those out but I still don't exactly remember what I left in and what I took out so the book that you read isn't the book that lives in my head. So it's always really cool to hear other people's view of it, because it helps me give, like, it helps give me a broader sense of this thing that I helped create, but that still feels very much outside of my control.
1: There was a Newbery program, a virtual Newbery program, where all of you authors talked to our chair, Tad and Dracky, and you, the the topic of censorship, the current issue of censorship came up, and I thought you had a lot of really important things to share. Has Too Bright to See made it onto any of those lists?
2: Not that I know of, and not yet. I think that part of that is the cover design and also the jacket flap. Like, if you don't know what it's about, then you don't know what it's about. So that's been cool. I'm sure that it'll get there eventually, but so far, most of the, most of the animosity has been directed at when Aiden became a brother and complex mm-hmm. um, And I keep wanting to be like, guys, Google me. I have more books that you should make. <laughs> I don't want to
1: do that. Uh was that intentional, the jacket flap and the, the cover to be a little bit stealth?
2: Not exactly. I mean it it wouldn't make sense for the book in any other way because so much of the book is you figuring out along with Bug that if we put like a big like rainbow on the cover, <laughs> that would yeah. be yeah, that just wouldn't make sense. I I think that we wanted, you know, I think we wanted to position this book as a book and a ghost story and a coming of age novel and a particular prose style that is by a trans author about queer characters and not really and not reduce it to just just the fact that it's trans, but to really let it be mm-hmm. a full novel that doesn't need a rainbow to, to advertise what it is.
0: On a slightly different topic. I really love your essay from October, 2020 on Betsy Bird's blog, Frog and Toad were more than friends. And I mean, I love your work. Yeah. Yeah. So good. I mean, I love your work for kids, but the tone of that essay was so like enjoyable and funny. I, Really, I can imagine that moment when you found yourself in that hotel room and like, died of joy. But I was just wondering, given the tone of that, have you ever considered writing YA? Because I think it would be very well suited.
2: Yeah. So my very first... That's not true. One of my very early, like, long form writing projects was a young adult novel. And that's actually how I met my current agent, even though she didn't want to sign me for that project. It's just like sort of languishing in my Dropbox somewhere. I'm working on a project now that is definitely going to be like more upper middle grade, like very much like upper middle grade, lower YA, sort of splitting that difference. Mm -hmm. And I have sort of a daydream of a future YA that I might want to write, but I also really want to write for adults. I just like to write. I like have a lot of stories that I want to tell, and some of them, you know, not all of my stories are for all people, and I definitely have some grown up ideas too. Part of that is because I feel self-conscious around, like, other trans writers to exclusively write for adults because I think they're cooler than me and I want to be their friend. I have big like, <laughs> friends energy, which is embarrassing. I just want other trans people to think I'm cool. <laughs> but, yeah, it's it's fun to experiment with different voices. So I have a middle grade coming out in less than a month called Different Kinds of Fruit where the voice is just a complete 180. Like, I've read the first couple pages of both books and, like, school visits or whatever, and I've had people say that, like, it sounds like it was written by a different person because the voice is so radically different. And that's just fun to play. You know, I wrote I wrote that Frog and Toad piece when I was feeling very sad about boys. So a lot of that is, like, why don't I have a boyfriend? <laughs> And in Different Kinds of Fruit, I managed to finally write a good, like, crush scene because I started working on that revision right when I met my boyfriend. So I was like, I have a crush on someone again. I know how to do this.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think from all accounts, the frog and toad lifestyle is extremely enviable. And yeah, I mean, it's just that essay is amazing. What started you writing? Did you write as a child?
2: It's funny. I... It took me a really long time to finally start identifying as a writer. Like, it's really only been in the last, like, couple years that I've been comfortable calling myself that. I have some memories of writing in the sixth grade because my sixth grade teacher gave us some really cool story prompts. And I remember feeling like—it's weird. I remember feeling like writing a story felt like falling into a net, Like, it felt like there was something holding me, and it was the fact that I was writing something. But then that was just for school in sixth grade, and then I didn't really write creatively at all through high school. I didn't write in college except for, you know, the essays that I had to write. I wrote one piece of fiction in college for just some class, and I enjoyed it, but it it never really occurred to me that it was something that I might actually want to focus on. It wasn't until after college, because I was a complete disaster in every way imaginable. I was very crazy. And I decided to just to like, put all of these awful thoughts and feelings onto paper and see if that would help. And I wrote a short story featuring these two characters that meant a lot to me. And I liked the first chapter. And then I wanted to write another scene. But I was like, well, you can't have a short story that's two chapters. That means I have to write a whole book about these guys. So I did. And I wrote it like long. I wrote it like by hand on the back of scrap paper when I was working at Barnes and Noble. And I tried kind of lazily to get it published. I sent it to like a few tiny like indie presses. And I am so grateful that didn't happen. Oh my God. It's like That was my first novel that got published when I was 24. I do not think I would have any kind of writing career today. So I am so glad that didn't happen. And then I started working on a variety of short stories that ended up getting published in some like little anthologies here and there. And writing always still had that feeling of being a net that I could fall into. Like if I was feeling sort of at loose ends or bored or lonely or just like unsure of what I should be doing with my time. I was like, well, I could have a writing project that'll make me feel better. And it always did. And then in 2012, I decided to try to write a young adult novel, which as I shared, did not go anywhere. But by the time I decided to give up on that one, I knew how the querying process worked. I knew how to write, Uh, you know, I knew how to write a query letter. I knew how to pitch to agents. I knew how to take rejection. So I decided to see if this like little picture book idea that I had had back in 2007 was anything and that became my debut which was a storytelling of ravens and everything just kind of went from there it's like I sort of like shoved my foot in a door and then just kept like throwing my body against it until it finally opened
0: we would love to know what projects you're working on now for the future yes yes
2: Oh man, there are so many, and some of them I'm allowed to talk about, and some of them I'm not. But this year, my next novel, Different Kinds of Fruit, comes out on April 12th, and I am very, I like that one more than too bright to see, and I don't think anyone else is going to agree with me, and that is fine. <laughs> we can all have different opinions about books. I like this one better. It is the queerest thing I've ever written. And I'm very excited about it. I have a picture book called If You're a Kid Like Gavin that comes out in July. And that is my first nonfiction. It's a book that I co-wrote with that young trans activist Gavin Grimm. Oh, fun. I, talk about. I can talk about the mermaid chapter books that are coming out that are just Mermaids? Like mermaids. It's called Mermaid Days. It's an early chapter book series from the Acorn line. So they're, you know, very dialogue heavy right illustrations they are intended for like early emerging to early readers i'm very excited about those and then i have more books that i can't talk about but i can tell you that i've got a book for babies and i've got a book about apologizing and i've got a book about vegetables and I've got a- <laughs> vegetables yeah yeah no, there's a there's a lot
1: do you have a favorite newberry book winner or honor or several. Or neither.
0: Besides your own.
2: <laughs> so many of my favorite books from from when I was a kid were books that got the Newberry. Like, you know, the Newberry sticker has been emblazoned in my mind for as long as I can remember. But two books that really stand out to me are when I was a kid, I loved the great Gilly Hopkins. Oh that yeah. was just you know, my life experience was not at all like Gilly's, but she was so angry. And yeah. I'm also very angry and I, her anger made me feel better about mine. And just, you know, that book has, you know, it's not perfect because that doesn't exist, but there's so much about it that is so really brilli- brilliantly done. And I also love drawing a through line from that book to one of my recent favorites, uh, Fighting Words by mm-hmm. Kim. That one got any very honor, right? I'm not making that up. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. it didn't. It didn't. <laughs> okay, I didn't want to, I I was like, yes, because that book is very, there's a lot of similarities between that one and The Great Gilly Hopkins. They're, They're different in a lot of ways, but some real major similarities. And I think that Fighting Words takes the elements of Gilly that were so important and phenomenal and manages to write a story that doesn't include mm-hmm. the stuff that I find hard to read to my kids. today. So like a lot of the great Gilly Hopkins is about her like unlearning her racism at the expense of like her black teacher. Mm-hmm. And some of the book is also like Gilly being like really ableist towards William Ernest, which, you know, one could argue about the merits of reading that i'm not going to get into that argument right now but it is nice to read a book where it is the same emotional tenor and similar circumstances but it doesn't rely on like anti-blackness to teach the reader something you know yeah but they're both fantastic and i love both of them
0: those are good choices i don't think anybody's answered either of those yet when we ask. They
1: haven't. Uh, We've had a lot of fantasy answers, which I mean, right on. Well, I uh, I
0: know, but I think that there's a a huge benefit in talking to someone who is a children's librarian and also a bookseller. Like you have a different perspective.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, these are books that I've like read aloud to my students and recommended to my students and talked to my students about, which is pretty cool. The thought that kept running through my brain is that as you know, I have been a a reader and a bookseller and a librarian and a book reviewer and awards committee member and now an author, which feels like it's not so much that you know how the sausage is made. It's like I am the farmer and I am also the butcher and I am also the like, <laughs> customer in the restaurant and I'm also the pig.
0: I was going to say you're kind of the sausage. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I'm like, I'm also going to go into the sausage. And then also I am the sausage. Yes. And it's, it is cool. I mean, I, you know, it, my entire life is books. And it is cool that my life gets to continue to be entirely books.
0: We are so glad that you could join us today. It was really fun talking with you.
2: Me too. I mean, this was really fun. You asked, I mean, I knew that you were going to ask good questions because like, you're both part of the sausage making. life. <laughs>
1: Well, there aren't sausage tarts, I guess. There could be a savory tart. It'd be like a meat pie. With sausage in it. Yeah. Meat pie. I don't want to be a meat pie.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining us today on the Newberry Tart Podcast. Again, we've been speaking with Kyle Lukoff, author of 2022 Newberry Honor Book, Too Bright to See. Please write and review us on iTunes, Apple Music, and anywhere else you listen to the podcast. You can also find us on social media at newberrytart.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Meitinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton ukulele band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T,
1: dot com.